Hello again. My name is Sheila Ramjug and I am part of the ERS Monograph Editorial Board as their Early Career Member Representative. I'm currently a pulmonologist working in the Manchester region in the UK. Following the successes of the previous Monograph podcast, we are recording a fifth relating to the recently available ERS Monograph entitled Supporting Tobacco Sensation. We are privileged to be joined by three of the guest editors, Sophia Ravara, who is a pulmonologist and assistant professor of the Preventative Medicine and Epidemiology at the University Hospital Covia in Portugal. Her research interests are the prevention and control of respiratory diseases, as well as lifestyle medicine, giving her a great insight into how tobacco harms a population's health. Vicky Katsaunu is an assistant professor in pulmonology working in the Medical School University Hospital of Athens in Greece. Her current research interests include smoking cessation and public health. She has also been very active within the ERS as the previous member of the Tobacco and Smoking Control Committee, providing us with great guidance and education. And finally, Professor Keir Lewis, a pulmonologist working in Swansea, Wales. He is the lead for his hospital's smoking cessation services. He has also co-authored the UK and European guidelines on smoking cessation. He is the UK CRN Specialty Lead for Respiratory Research in Wales, and Professor Keir is currently leading the largest prospective cohort study, LungCast, investigating stopping smoking after a diagnosis of lung cancer. So welcome to you all. Sophia, please tell us a little bit about you and your career path and why you have such an interest in this area. So good afternoon to all and thank you for hearing us. Well, I began as a clinician working uh, at respiratory departments in major hospitals uh, in Lisbon. And most of my patients at that time, they were smokers, mostly men and mostly smokers. And I felt very frustrated because I couldn't fully help them without helping them to quit. And I didn't have the skills, the clinical skills to help them to quit. So after being board certified as a pulmonologist, I was aware of master degree in tobacco dependence treatment in uh, University of Cantabria in the north of Spain. And I registered to be a, a master student and I did this expertise in smoking cessation, but also in tobacco control. Actually, this uh, master degree was an international platform of international uh, experts, not only in smoking cessation, but in tobacco control. And I understood that to treat, even to, to treat smokers, we need to implement public health policies and we need to have a broader perspective of population health. So my mindset as a healthcare professional changed to, to population health and uh, my thinking was different. And then I decided to do a, a PhD also in tobacco control, epidemiology and medical education in, in tobacco control. It, it's about the, the role of healthcare providers in tobacco control. Uh, I studied the engagement of Portuguese physicians also in smoking cessation and the association with smoke, uh, smoking social norm. And now I am teaching full time at the University of Berlin Trior. I am uh, the coordinator of uh, preventive medicine. I also teach epidemiology and also teach respiratory physiology and smoking cessation, of course. And I also work at the, at the hospital, but I only do outpatient uh, respiratory care and uh, smoking cessation. 
So my interest it's in smoking cessation and also in tobacco control. It, it it has it's double. I mean it's both from the clinician part, but also uh, I have a clinician interest, but I also have a population health interest. I would say. Vicky, coming to yourself now, why is this issue of the monograph so important? Although smoking cessation has been a part of uh, Hermes syllabus in respiratory medicine the last uh, 10 years, uh, I believe, I saw uh, that it's still not in our textbooks. So I believe that it's very important that this monograph has an holistic approach of smoking cessation coming from all experts. Thank you, Vicky. And I think that's certainly evident when you read uh, this monograph and that you can see a holistic approach is definitely something that you have all achieved. So I suppose, Keir, coming to yourself next, what areas are covered in the monograph specifically? And I hate to do this to yourself, but if you could read only one chapter in this edition, which one would it be? Too many doctors just treat diseases and accept that those diseases are just there and we alleviate suffering and we do it well and we try to stop disease progression. How about if we thought, well, let's stop the diseases in the first place. And we're taught this in medical school. I think a lot of this monograph talks about how to prevent the catastrophe of all these avoidable millions of deaths every year and how doctors and medical professionals can be involved at the forefront. And that's really the first part of the monograph. But what I've become more interested in, excited as a practicing lung doctor, when I see the carnage on my acute medical wards and my respiratory clinics um, and my respiratory failure services and cancer services, is how can we alleviate that suffering? And there's particular bits in this monograph where we relate it to established diseases. And we all say, well, we can treat COPD or lung cancer with standard drugs. But what is the benefit to stopping smoking at that point in their life? And if you look at some of the data from this monograph, that's new since 2008 and new since even 2015, the impact of the diseases we all see is so much greater if we manage to get our customers to stop smoking and our treatments work better. So there's some really good chapters on the impact on, for example, stopping smoking in lung cancer or COPD or tuberculosis, wherever you work, it's, it's, it's applicable. But if I had to pick one chapter, um, I would look at, well, what's practical? So we know that secondary prevention works. We know that primary prevention works. But where's the evidence? You can actually do it and do it well. And there's a chapter about how you can build a business case into your systems and stop, stop just talking about it and actually do something about it and how you can implement models that have been tested now around the world and are cost effective and really, really clinically important. And yet no one's doing them enough. And if you can employ those models and change your systems, whether you work in Wales, Portugal, Greece, uh, North America, the Far East, the system models where you can do something about it turns this book into from just a mere yet another academic discourse into something that could be practical. So I think the monograph entitles all three things. It gives us some background information. It shows us particularly secondary prevention and how to alleviate diseases. But let's do something about it and how to do it and what works. I think that is an absolute strength. Absolutely. I, I agree with you from reading the monograph, seeing uh, the different strategies that can be employed. So thank you again, all, all of you for providing us with this how-to manual, essentially. And I suppose one of the questions that I want to ask you is, with the nicotine epidemic and emerging products, what are your opinions with regards to, say, electronic cigarettes and smoking cessation? 
I think that, uh, first of all, e-cigarettes are not uh, medical devices. They're not medicines. They are consumer products. And I think the question is not about the effectiveness. Of course, e-cigarettes can help people to quit. But the problem is that they are using the inhaling route and they are delivered devices of nicotine, which is highly addictive, especially using the inhaling route. So people uh, will not become nicotine free. They will switch from smoking to e-cigarettes. And we may discuss if they are effective to help to switch from uh, tobacco to e-cigarettes. Yes, of course they are. But the problem is that the debate about the role of e-cigarettes in smoking cessation should be balanced with the safety of these uh, products and also the public health impact. I mean, the, the impact on the whole population. So first thing, uh, e-cigarettes are not harmless uh, devices. They use nicotine. Even nicotine can be harmful, especially for young people, because it, it harms the brain. And this monograph has a chapter dedicated to how nicotine can harm the brain, especially of, ch of children and adolescents. And uh, the other thing is that because they are addictive, those smokers who switch to e-cigarettes will continue to use these devices and in the medium long term they will suffer from respiratory diseases or cardiovascular diseases uh, or, or, or cancer. I mean, we still don't know. At a population level, we don't have people that have already became sick uh, because there's still no time because e-cigarettes are, um, they have been launched in the market more or less 10 years ago. But the thing is, and of course, duration of use of consumption is uh, the main determinant of uh, disease risk. But there is a lot of studies. I mean, every day there's hundreds of studies uh, that are published about the health effects of uh, e-cigarettes. There is at least toxicological studies uh, that study the aerosol and the aerosol has a lot of uh, toxic substance and harmful substance, carcinogenics, and also substances that are very irritant and toxic to respiratory and cardiovascular system. There is also studies in animal models that uh, already point out that they may cause inflammation, systemic inflammation, oxidative stress, and other uh, mechanisms that are already studied as the mechanisms that happen in lung diseases, but also in cardiovascular diseases and other diseases. There is also studies that show that they can cause infection and um, deter our host defenses. And there is also evidence that they may cause the mechanisms of cancer diseases. So they are not safe. They are highly addictive. People continue to use them and they are, there is evidence from population studies and from random control trials that between 50 and 80 percent of uh, smokers who switch to e-cigarettes or who try to quit tobacco pro uh, smoking using e-cigarettes, they are still using these devices one year later. So between 50% and 80%, so the great majority of them. And I think this is uh, a, a main concern. And the other thing is that these products remain uh, largely 
unregulated and it's very uh, there is a lot of um, promotion and advertisement in the social media also in the internet and we know these are the uh, privileged uh, channels for uh, youth and for children they are highly appealing Uh, for children and adolescents and they easily hook consumers. So because they remain uh, largely unregulated and they are even uh, marketed as not being as being harmless and, and being smoking station tools, uh, they attract new users and, and non-smokers and there, there may be a switch At a population level, people will use these devices. And even if the individual risk is lower, I mean, at the individual level, if more people are using nicotine, inhaled nicotine, and it's not only nicotine with all the other uh, harmful substance, at a population level, the burden of diseases may be higher. And I think this is uh, the public health impact can be It can be a public health tragedy, actually. But we have a lot of non-proven suppositions. And I think we are, this debate is also very polarized. And we shouldn't, we should be more open-minded and continue to do research. And I mean, not be so, have more a wider perspective, not only of the individual risk, but also the uh, the population impact of using these these devices. And of course, it's really important that these devices, uh, that e-cigarettes and also heated tobacco and the new and the other emergent products, they must be highly regulated. One of the most effective ways would to to ban the advertisement and the promotion of these products and also to raise the prices and to ban uh, using this. Uh, the smoking ban should also include the e-cigarettes and heated tobacco indoors. I, I totally agree, Sophia, and, and I think a lot of the arguments have been hijacked by people a lot with vested interests. We know that Big Tobacco owns a lot of these uh, smokeless companies as well. And, and as doctors and as people reading the monograph and as lung professionals, we should really be centering the argument about, well, let's use products we know for sure are safe and we know for sure are effective and they have got no long-term damage that we know of from multiple studies in hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And that's where we should be positioning the battleground at the moment rather than using this as a potential distraction. Thank you both. I think that's really helpful to, to have a wider perspective of that argument because I've certainly noticed many younger people using these emergent products who have never actually smoked a cigarette as such. But as healthcare professionals, how can we help to avoid this type of nicotine addiction and especially in the younger population? Which methods, Vicky, work? What can we do? I think that uh, we should inform young people that Uh, they are losing their freedom because nicotine addiction is a chronic disease and that they should not be fooled from advertisements because these new emergent uh, these new products actually uh, are like uh, very attractive uh, gadgets and some of them are also highly addicted and uh, we should show them the real face inform them that they are going to be addicted and also show them that it has been proven that some of these uh, products are lowering their uh, performances uh, in sports even in young people that uh, actually the long-term 
possible health hazards uh, are not so important for them. They, they think they are immortal. But uh, we know that they affect their duty, they affect their nice uh, smell, they affect their performances, and mostly uh, they will be deprived of their freedom. So we should inform them of all this, I believe. And Vicky, in such a young population, are there specific ways to inform people that work better than others? Uh, for uh, these new products, uh, actually, electronic cigarettes are in the market the last uh, 10 years, and heated cigarettes are just uh, in some countries the last uh, two or three years, and they are already becoming popular. Uh, there are some problems because uh, although they are tobacco products, uh, some of them are advertised in the internet. And so we cannot uh, actually use all the tobacco product uh, methods and tobacco laws. So about research uh, in these new products is uh, something that is very new. So we are not exactly, we don't have much uh, results about which method is the one that would be more effective. But uh, since uh, we can see that the tobacco industry is using the same tactic as uh, if they have been using for uh, classic cigarettes, which is the looks, the, that it's trendy, that it's uh, highly, uh, it's very in fashion, I believe that we can use our experience and try to stop advertising these uh, products and start awareness campaigns and informative uh, sessions in the radio, the TV and uh, everywhere. Thank you, Vicky. I'm going to change tact ever so slightly. And Kira, I wanted to come back to yourself. As you mentioned earlier, that in this edition of the monograph, there are separate chapters on different respiratory conditions explaining to us as healthcare professionals how we can improve a patient's care. So I was just wondering if you wanted to focus on a few particular respiratory diseases to explain to us how we can help our patients and if there are any particular barriers to clinicians and patients accessing help. Yeah, so there are specific chapters on the diseases per se, as well as um, barriers to putting in care and support from primary care, community services, straight up to tertiary levels and transplant units. And the way you'd look at it would be a system-wide approach across different diseases through the same hospital, the same GP surgery, the same research centre. But the best way we look at, if you look at a massive impact, would be low-level, very brief 30-second advice on every healthcare encounter. If you think that 70% of people see a doctor of some sort every year, 70% of us will see one. It's a massive opportunity. So even a very weak effect would have very strong public health benefits and 30 seconds to save a life. Use it when people go for an x-ray, use it when people attend for screening services, use it when people um, apply for various benefits. You can use it for when people are having chemotherapy, when people are having non-invasive ventilation. It's a system-wide approach. And if you look at, for example, really major five killers of respiratory and a burden, 
you can improve outcomes in asthma. It, we know it's the only thing we can do in COPD that can make people live longer and improve all four symptoms and quality of life. So the major four symptoms of COPD, nothing can do that and make live, people live longer. Pulmonary rehabilitation can't do that. Uh, but, but where is the smoking cessation in the COPD clinics? It needs to be embedded into it. Um, there's some work that's been done across the UK and multi-centre trials suggesting that stopping smoking is almost as powerful, if not more powerful, than chemotherapy for lung cancer. And that's an astounding fact. If you can reduce lung cancer mortality by 17%, that's really dramatic in a so-called horribly progressive and curable disease. If you can stop people with TB smoking, they're much more responsive to the TB tablets. They're much less infectious. They cough less. Their x-rays improve quicker and they become smear negative more quickly if they stop smoking as they're taking the TB drugs. And that kind of thing will have impact for other people. Obviously, we know more and more about the impact of smoking on COVID and the fact that smokers probably are three times as more likely to have COVID symptoms, although it's very hard to track in the community. But what we do know for sure is if you're admitted with COVID, you're between two and three times more likely to end up on a ventilator or die even if you don't smoke with the same age and morbidities. So it does something to your immune system. It does something terrible and ongoing to your lung defences. But I think an important part of this monograph is this evidence of secondary prevention. So the story, it's never too late to stop. And when you have old and bitter lung doctors like me saying it's too late for these people, it probably isn't. And I was saying the wrong things to some of my patients, even towards palliative care. There's evidence you can improve quality of life and, and locus of control over that. So I do believe it can be embedded. There's excellent work from the Ottawa med, um, model of smoking cessation embedded across hospitals and community care that looked like it reduced mortality in people who were admitted by 20 to 30 percent at two years. That's mortality and that's incredible. That's really incredible. The Cure project uh, near you, Sheila, in Manchester, the cost effectiveness of what that system is doing across a range of hospitals and specialties beyond just respiratory is remarkable. And we've quoted all these examples of individual diseases, but also how to do it and, and how often to do it and what's the most effective and cost effective way of doing it. Thank you, Keir. There are some astounding facts there. And you're absolutely right. I am very, very privileged to work in a hospital where Cure essentially was founded. Um, so for myself and the clinicians working here, we really don't have any excuse because we have such excellent teachers, but also access. But certainly through my training, when I was going to other hospitals, we, we weren't as lucky. So thank you again. I'd just like to thank you all for producing such a holistic monograph, essentially. You have all really given us much to consider in terms of how to support tobacco cessation in our patients. I truly believe that this is a must read for all respiratory clinicians. And I cannot stress enough to the listeners how much I've taken away from reading your monograph, especially given its relevance to our daily clinical practice. I just wanted to tell you something, Sheila. Most physicians and healthcare providers that have seen the my colleagues here in Portugal, they are really excited about it. And I think one of the things that it really moves me is that they say that it's very useful. They say, for example, the, the president of the Respiratory Society said, as a doctor, as a physician, I want to thank you, you all, to have written this book. So it's really, and even early career members, they, this is fabulous, and everybody is so excited about the monograph. Thank you. I'm afraid this brings us to the end of this podcast, and I'm so grateful to you all for your time and for your dedication to this topic.
I hope the listeners enjoy this podcast as much as I have. Thank you.